hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. So here's a podcast worth checking out. Change Lab, a long-form interview podcast that explores the transformative power of creativity. Hosted by Lauren M. Buckman, the show is produced by Art Center College of Design, a global leader in art and design education. As Lauren discusses in his new book, Make to Know, and as his guests can confirm, creativity isn't a matter of instant enlightenment. It's actually a process of braving the unknown, en route to knowing what it is we are meant to make. This ninth season lineup includes interviews with author Amy Bender, visual artist Anne Hamilton, Whirlpool design chief Tisha Johnson, Lincoln Park performer and illustrator Mike Shinoda, and pioneering installation artist Diana Thader. Change Lab shines a spotlight on little and big dramas that comprise the artistic life of people who can't help but make something, where before there was nothing. Subscribe, listen, and enjoy Change Lab wherever you get your podcasts. If it were a photograph, he'd be looking directly at the camera, and she is almost, oh, for heaven's sake, take this. Take the picture. And get it over with. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing, this is stoicism, I think. You know, it's somebody saying, like, you know, this is the lot we were given, and it's not going to get any better. Yeah. Obviously, the title must take its name from the very austerity of the two figures and the window, which is a Gothic arch. Okay, well, I'm seeing two very dour-looking people. There's one man and one woman. Um, the man is balding with spectacles, and he has round spectacles and crazy eyebrows. Um, a flat line smile, no smile, old, hardworking. But look at the man's face. I mean, he's a very, he's ground down. He's very unforgiving. Very serious, very kind of determined, um, in a way. Um, very lean and looks like an iconic farmer wearing a pinstripe shirt maybe almost like an old laundry day shirt <laughs> with overalls and then he's holding a pitchfork holding this pitchfork you know is he's, he's almost saying you know holding on to life you know, and, you know this is this is it come and get it you know so this is all there is and his presumed wife is standing behind him. His daughter, and she's supposed to be his unmarried daughter, just looks beyond expectation. I mean, her possibilities are very limited. If you look at even her breasts are sagging, you know, but she's still, she dressed up. She has a beautiful little cameo brooch. That's probably the most, like, luxurious thing in the whole painting is her little brooch um, and she has an apron just dour boring color dress and apron and then she has her hair pulled back into a low bun and it's blonde and she has very very piercing blue eyes I know it's such a little touch that's like the hairstyle I wanted for my wedding <laughs> that I couldn't quite get So you know what's interesting for me with this painting? So it's obviously a very famous painting. It's American Gothic. Um, 
I, for one, when I first saw it, when we just walked upon it, it was very anticlimactic. It was like, well, there it is. Um, I think one of the reasons for me it's anticlimactic is I did not grow up anywhere near a farm or with people like this in my life, like grandparents who worked really hard on a farm growing up. Um, so I never really felt any connection to this besides that I knew it and it was familiar and that it was parodied all the time. Like you start to lose, it's like if you repeat a word over and over again, the word starts to feel abstract and not real. That's how this painting feels to me. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 54, Grant Wood's American Gothic, from 1930. I think there's something fundamental to our human nature where we really enjoy messing with our own senses. We love it when something becomes something else entirely, like that image of a vase morphing into two profiles, or, God, that white and gold slash blue and black dress. The point is, our brains are complicated, as are our eyes, the gateways to our equally complicated souls. And what's frightening about this deeply human phenomenon, especially lately, it seems, although maybe it's always been this way, is how quickly it goes off the rails. Our complicated brains and eyes and souls turn to simple binary answers. And maybe this is also fundamental to our human nature, this aggressive turn from and into or. It's not both, or, you know, maybe context or life experience dependent. It's one or the other. And I think that's why this seemingly anodyne painting by Grant Wood of his sister and his dentist and a pretty window and a pitchfork is so incredibly famous. People have really, really strong feelings about it. And they always seem to be one thing or another. The painting has been endlessly mocked and spoofed. It's been lionized and loved. It's been analyzed to death. It's a grim satire of the American dream and a wistful celebration of a disappearing way of American life. It's a flimsy Iowa house, and it's a Gothic cathedral. It's an icon, and it's propaganda. It's dislocation, and it's dignity. It's also, unequivocally, the painting that made Grant Wood's artistic career. Wood was born in Iowa in 1891 and died of pancreatic cancer in 1941, the day before his 51st birthday. And in the time between, he took several trips to Paris. He found inspiration in the landscapes of Flemish altarpieces, medieval portrait sculptures, and French Impressionism. He taught art for a spell at the University of Iowa, and he produced a series of paintings that run the gamut of style, genre, and some might even say quality and taste. 
One of his lesser-known works is actually a chandelier made of corn cobs that was commissioned by a Cedar Rapids hotel. That sounds, if you'll forgive me, corny as hell. But I digress. The 1920s and 30s was a competitive time to be an artist trying to tell the story of America. And so often this story ended up being one of ambivalence and ambiguity. Think about Edward Hopper's alienated figures and the grime of the ash cans on the sidewalk, like the ones we looked at in episode 12. Or think of the hardened, weathered subjects of FSA photographers and Ansel Adams' subsequent escape into the wilderness, like we looked at in episode 37. There's a lot to America. The speed and pace and soot and alienation of the city was a complicated thing. And it was becoming clearer, especially in the wake of the Great Depression, that rural life wasn't much easier. But still, there was a whole thriving competitive subgenre of art that was trying to, in spite of the magnetic pull of the city, capture rural America with romance and nostalgia. And this, in a nutshell, was Wood's goal. American Gothic, which was submitted to a painting competition at the Art Institute of Chicago soon after its completion, and took both bronze and the $300 cash prize that accompanied it, was, at Grant's insistence, not a caricature of its subjects, but an affection for them. There was a particular stateliness to the European portraiture that had captured his eye on so many sojourns to Paris, a dignity that he wanted to impart onto the men and women he had grown up around. In sum, he wrote, quote, I had to go to France to appreciate Iowa. And I think it's the simultaneous earnestness and absurdity of this statement that makes this painting so popular and such a paradox. This is where American Gothic has its own ambivalence and ambiguity and even mystery, even when the subject matter is seemingly so straightforward. It's hard to know whether or not to take Wood's sincerity seriously. It's hard to swallow the idea that Paris, the capital of 19th and early 20th century modernism and culture, has anything to do with Eldon, Iowa, where this house was built and still sits, and which has a population of 783 according to the 2020 census. But if you're from Eldon, and if you admire its steadfast people and breathe deeply its plains, and if you see America reflected in those weathered overalls in that pitchfork, then it's not so crazy to imagine that Paris has enough dignity to spare when it comes to elevating the pioneer spirit of a tiny Iowa town. Moreover, there's the practical fact that the house and the Gothic window that was directly influenced by the medieval French cathedrals came first, and this was what inspired Wood's imagination. The story of the house brings us the story of how this painting came to be, before it ever came to be infamous. Wood passed this small white house, now called the Dibble House after its first owner, Charles Dibble, and was taken by its architectural style, called Carpenter Gothic. The style is uniquely North American, borrowing characteristics like pointed arches and steep gables, somewhat loosely from the medieval Gothic style, 
and then adding decorative motifs like gingerbread trim and jigsaw details, thanks to the recent invention of the steam-powered scroll saw. And the takeaway of all this, for our purposes, is that this style was one of a number of architectural revival styles in the 19th century, especially in the United States, where architects enjoyed a kind of cafeteria pick of honed historical European styles, which were then gently bastardized and often metaphorically deployed. The kind of architecture you chose to populate this new frontier had larger implications for the story of yourself that you wanted to tell. The Carpenter Gothic style tended to be a stand-in for charm and quaintness, and also its opposite, a chance to add classy European ornamentation, and with it maybe some affectation, to an otherwise straightforward flimsy frame house. So back to Wood and his imagination. He apparently sketched the house on the back of an envelope to keep it fresh in his memory, and then described being curious about the kinds of people who would live in a house like that, and maybe what a window like that would mean to them. Then he recruited two people in his life that would stand in for them, his sister, Nan, and his dentist, Dr. Byron McKeeby, both of whom, with their long faces, that added pitchfork, and even the stripes and stitching on the denim overalls that mirror the pitchfork, reinforce this gothic verticality at every turn. Whether or not Wood envisioned them as husband and wife or father and daughter is actually a source of debate. He has letters describing both scenarios, and most likely settled on father and daughter in the face of some harsh external criticism, about which he was notoriously thin-skinned, referencing the unseemly age difference between the two figures. And Nan, for her part, was more than happy to push the father-daughter thing, hoping, maybe, that it would change the way that she looked in the eyes of the viewers. She never did appreciate how stiff and matronly her brother made her look. And you can kind of see why. Regardless of the relationship status between these two figures, there is no question that they are wedded by the fact that they both look completely miserable. When the image was reproduced following its placing in the Art Institute competition, Iowans were reportedly furious at being represented as, quote, pinched, grim-faced, puritanical Bible thumpers. But if we choose not to look directly into these uninviting faces, we get the opportunity to appreciate the details that surround them and maybe help explain them. The cameo brooch at her collar, the little escaping lock of hair at the nape of her neck, both of which give her a kind of elegance and femininity that you don't get from that pursed mouth. There's a world beyond this tight frame stoicism, the brooch seems to be saying. There's still some fun in this old girl yet, says that lock of hair. Meanwhile, there's enormous strength and visual structure to the man's hand as it grips the pitchfork. Thomas Hoving, former director of the Met and a biographer of the painting, suggests that you actually hold your hand over his to see how quickly the rest of the painting collapses without its grounding presence. In fact, he details an anecdote where Grant Wood, having been plagued with gum problems that led him to spend many trusting hours in his dentist's chair, looking into this long, bespectacled face, once grabbed McKeeby's hand and praised its strength and character. 
Again, Wood's own letters tell us that he was painting from a place of deep respect and gathering pieces of a larger whole, faces and houses and windows, to tell a larger story of a larger idea of pioneer spirit, resilience, and nostalgia. He even dressed his models, hand-picking their clothing to turn them into, in his words, tintypes from my old family album. He dressed this woman to be even more old-fashioned than the rural fashion of the day would be, and the man has the added smartness of an overcoat over his overalls. Quote, there is satire in it, Wood concedes, but only as there is satire in any realistic statement. I tried to characterize them truthfully, to make them more like themselves than they were in actual life, end quote. And this is interesting, this idea of making the real realer through idealization. It makes sense that Wood, who was so fascinated by European iconography, would intentionally reference it in this painting by tightening the frame closely around these front-facing figures and reinforcing an idealized icon of his own. This convention was used in Byzantine and Christian art, which is full of idealized religious figures that were created explicitly for personal use. They were called icons. Individuals would use this close relationship that they developed with these idealized images as a kind of portal into spiritual transcendence. The objects became immediate and relatable conduits to whatever world they represented to the viewer, kind of like American Gothic has now. So with this in mind, let's look again at their faces, which are so ripe for viewers and critics especially to project their own representations and fantasies onto. This is no longer an objective story. As the New Yorker critic Peter Sheldahl writes, they are icons who don't actually reveal what exactly is being iconized. And so, like a good horoscope, everyone sees something different, and usually something that confirms their own prior biases, especially when it comes to the extraordinarily topical subject of what rural America means to them. Thomas Hoving, for example, insists that these figures are on the verge of welcoming laughter, Sheldahl writes that they look like they're on the verge of tears. The spoofing of this painting began as early as 1957, with the opening tableau of the musical The Music Man, and goes all the way to a photo that my parents had on their mantle of them posing at a Canadian fair. All you need, really, is a man, a woman, and a pitchfork, and you have this instantly recognizable icon. And this incessant spoofery has naturally led to protectionism, to prominent scholars like Hoving defending the painting on NPR as perhaps the greatest American portrait, which leads to others basically telling him in not so many words that, mm, not quite, and so on and so forth into our moment, when polarization about rural America seems to have reached a fever pitch. No one really seems to care about what Wood's original intentions were. They see in this painting a conduit to the world they want to see. But it would be a bit misplaced to bring our 2021 discourse to 1930 and expect to draw any clean comparisons. 
The rural versus urban divide was, of course, present, but it had its own flavor, largely because there just wasn't as much contact between the urban and rural populations in 1930, especially compared to what we're used to. But one way of touching hands was, interestingly enough, through art. There was significant pushback against the perception of urban modernity, and explicitly the French avant-garde art that came to define it, which was embodied in the Midwestern art movement that came to be known as regionalism. Regionalist painting was largely focused on straightforward and direct images of cultivated landscapes, of small-town America, usually based in the Midwest. It was largely a response to the Great Depression, and the polar opposite of the work produced by photographers, mostly from big cities, who captured and made famous the suffering and hardened faces of the rural folks hardest hit by the Depression, like we see in Walker Evans's famous portrait of Allie Mae Burroughs. Regionalism was, on the other hand, meant to be reassuring, to reinforce a stable balance between the American abundance of farmland and resources and our ability to cultivate it through our own homegrown technology, like we see in Thomas Hart Benton's Threshing Wheat from the early 1940s. There's a peaceful coexistence between the fields and the machinery, the undulating hills and the exhaust. Nostalgia was regionalism's fundamental and formidable weapon in the war against modernism, particularly abstraction and, you know, all the other inaccessible avant-garde crap coming in from Europe, and France in particular. And it's a war that regionalism was actually winning until, as it would happen, the end of the actual war, World War II, when the urban economy soared and in the art world, when an influx of European artists emigrated to New York, birthing the New York School. And ironically, Thomas Hart Benton's most famous pupil was an upstart named Jackson Pollock. But regionalism and its influence didn't decline entirely. Its mantle was taken up by artists like Andrew Wyeth and Norman Rockwell, who possessed even greater artistic talent than their predecessors, and created exceptional realism to capture an idealized America. And it also needs to be pointed out how ironic it was that a movement like regionalism, that so staunchly defined itself as anti-modernist, and particularly anti-French, should produce a painting like American Gothic, which reveres French architecture. Despite the threat posed by modern art to the rural sensibilities of the 1930s, there was still so clearly a desire on Wood's part to dig into history and culture up to his elbows, to use it to elevate and idealize and dignify this hometown spirit, even as he represented a movement that foundationally rejected his methods to do so. And so where does this leave us? Kind of right back where we started, right? This thing that's something and also something else entirely. We have a painting that is, even according to the artist, both earnest and satire. It's revered and it's spoofed. It's anti-French and it's pro-French. It's on the verge of a smile and a sob. And I know I keep coming back to this, but no wonder it's so famous. It's seemingly the most straightforward double portrait ever painted, and yet determining its cultural value with any certainty 
is like nailing jello to the wall. And I'm gonna go out on a limb and say maybe this is what makes it so quintessentially American. If this painting is a portal, then I get to use it as one too. I said before that Wood's original intentions get swept away in the clamor to make this painting a Rorschach test for how people feel about rural America, both in 1930 and today. And I, even as a Boston-born city dweller, think that it's a mistake to use the painting that way if we really want to understand how rural Americans feel about rural America and how that's shaped the America that we all share. The most famous artworks that capture the city from around the same time, again, the Hoppers, the Henri's, the Robert Franks, treat cities as the complicated and dirty and glorious and oversized and alienating spaces that they are. And if you really look closely, you see that so many of these artists, even in their reverence, are tinging these artworks with their own nostalgia for a simpler time and place. And Wood's paintings simply dwell in this nostalgia, capturing an unabashed respect and affection for his subjects, for his own home. And despite the faint propagandistic whiff coming off these rolling hills, the fact remains that there was a communal moment in American culture that saw these paintings for the genuine optimism that they conveyed. I mean, the background set design all along the Yellow Brick Road in 1939's The Wizard of Oz is modeled after Grant Wood's paintings. This was a view of America that everyone, at this particular moment, off of this particular depression, going into this particular war, was proud to share. And we're in a different moment now, a different depression, different domestic and cultural wars. The thing about polarization is that we put so much energy into vilifying the perceived other side, questioning how they could possibly love what they love, that it distracts us from our own sense of optimism, why we love our values, who we are, and why they just might love theirs and who they are. We see them as we want to see them. They see us the same way. And sometimes the reality of it is a lot more straightforward than we think. Because it turns out it's incredibly hard to shame someone out of loving where they're from. It informs childhood, politics, family, memory. And Grant Wood understood this. After all, nostalgia is, in the words of Don Draper, a delicate and potent thing. And maybe the way that we inch ourselves back to one another, towards an America that we can be proud to share, is to acknowledge this, this seemingly simple, maybe even too simple, fundamental reality that an awful lot of people in this big, complicated country and from all of their defended corners of it, feel like there's no place like home and start from there. But, you know, sorry to be corny.
Special thanks to Dana Gerber-Margie, formerly of the Bellow Collective, which you should subscribe to right now, and the intrepid visitors at the Art Institute of Chicago. For more information, past episodes, and all of the images, visit thelonelypalette.com or follow us on Twitter at Lonely Palette or on Instagram at The Lonely Palette. And be sure to hit up Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review, which, like a good cameo brooch, never goes out of style. We're also planning some big changes at our Patreon, which, come the new year, will include bonus content at whatever level you support, on top of the swag you can already get. Go to patreon.com slash lonelypalette, and thank you so much. We also have some quick and exciting announcements. First off, our episode on Anselm Kiefer from August 2020, which we produced in collaboration with SFMOMA's podcast, Raw Material, was awarded the gold medal in podcasting from the American Association of Museums, which is a stupidly exciting honor. And if you happen to be a museum interested in collaborating, I can't promise gold, but I can certainly shoot for it. Come say hi at thelonelypalette.com. Second, the holiday season is right around the corner, and whether you're a small group of friends or a big corporate company still working from home, and you're all just looking for some fun Zoom team building to get you through those darkening fall nights, why not book a virtual tour of art through the ages with me? We'll take a safe and highly enjoyable romp through the best art museum of all, which is any collection of paintings we want because it's the internet. Learn more at thelonelypalette.com slash virtual tours. And finally, we've got some thrilling news out of Hub and Spoke, our collective of mind-expanding podcasts. We're keeping independent podcasting alive through the generous $100,000 donation that we've just received from the Rasmussen Family Fund. And we're using that cash to hire a develop and communications manager. So if you're great at raising money and enjoy podcasts a lot, check out the posting at hubspokeaudio.org jobs. And speaking of Hub and Spoke, on the latest episode of The Constant, A History of Getting Things Wrong, host Mark Chrysler is taking a deep dive into the hardest problem humanity has ever solved, a problem that sounds pretty easy on the surface. Where are we? Thousands of years, untold fortunes, and an incredible number of lives were spent trying to figure out a way of determining longitude. That's on Long Story Short, a special two-parter that you can listen to at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh,